before you listen to today's awesome episode, I want to give a quick shout out to Eileen, who helped support the podcast. Contributions like these help offset some of the costs that go into maintaining the podcast. There are no sponsors or advertisements for the show, and so right now I pay for all the hosting and other costs related to maintaining the podcast. If you're interested in helping support the show, go to ko-fi.com forward slash Dana Wanzer. You can also find the link in the show notes. Also, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast or know someone who you think should be on, please reach out to podcast at danawanzer.com. I'd love to chat with you about any and all things evaluation related. And now on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to Evaluland, the podcast about the land of evaluation between you and me, your host, Dana Linnell Wanzer. This is the show where we interview people about any and all things evaluation related. Welcome to another episode of Evaluland. On this episode, I'm chatting with Eric Persaud about evaluation at the National Institutes of Health, including his work in the worker training program at the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. We were connected through our mutual contact, my friend and colleague, Jeff Ramdas, who is also Eric's cousin and shout out to Jeff for passing his dissertation defense this week. So now we are affectionately referring to him as Dr. Jeff. And so Eric received his doctorate in public health at the Department of Environmental and Occupational Health Sciences, State University of New York, Downstate Health Sciences University. He focuses on evaluating and researching training programs related to preparing workers for emergencies and disasters and hazardous workplaces. So I'm so glad that you could join us on the podcast. I look forward to getting to know you through chatting on today's episode. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm very excited to talk about a subject in evaluation and the mere topic of evaluation, which if you had asked me a few years ago would not have been on my professional resume. So it's pretty, pretty interesting to be part of this group and this conversation. So thank you. Yeah. Awesome. And I'm, I really want to get into that because I'm always curious how people get into the field. So we'll get into that in a second, but first I'm wondering if you could just introduce yourself to our listeners. Hey everyone. So this is Dr. Eric Rasad. By the way, I'm, I'm speaking as an employee of Kelly Services Incorporated as an independent contractor. And while I'm discussing some work I've done for NIHS as a contractor, I'm not speaking on behalf of NIHS and my opinions are stated that are my own. So it's been a pleasure. I've been part of the NIH for a couple of years now in different capacities growing. Uh, recently defending my dissertation about a year ago on opioids in the workplace and that evaluation of that program that they launched back in the summer of 2019 up to now. Uh, I've also evaluated their COVID-19 program and been heavily involved in fentanyl and first responder evaluation as well. Oh, and I'm looking forward to talking more about the evaluation work you're doing and what that looks like and stuff. So first, you mentioned that, you know, a few years ago, you, you may not have even heard about this or it definitely wouldn't have been in your resume or anything. So how did you get into the field of evaluation? How did you find out about it? How did you decide this is where you wanted to get into? Yeah, so my undergraduate degree is actually an earth science. Hmm. So I, I got a degree in earth and atmospheric sciences uh, and I got my bachelor's in geology. And I started my first job as a geologist for a construction company doing mostly hazmat and labor associated work. And I think in the, the run of boredom <laughs> and the pursuit of knowledge, I was like, I need to do something while I am working. So I, I started doing my master's online through North Carolina State University in environmental assessment. And I started off thinking, you know, I'll do work 
in wastewater or wastewater treatment or some kind of statistical or chemical analysis, you know. And I luckily, like many people in graduate school that are fortunate enough, had a wonderful advisor. And her focus was so heavily on occupational health that she had saw some interesting things that I were challenging and facing at work. So I was facing very hazardous materials and hazardous environments because that was the nature of the work we did. We were at times cleaning chemical tanks and I had shifted at that point to mostly labor, doing labor work in these hazmat situations. And we had tons of near misses and I'd seen so many uh, injuries and accidents and really on call for and preventable situations in the workplace and in different workplaces throughout. Uh, so we took advantage of that and did, did my master's thesis on you know, the risk perceptions of chemical tank cleaners and such. And that really helped push me into thinking about people more than the environment or thinking people in the context of the environment and understanding disasters and these emergencies. But I had no research experience. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a construction working hazmat worker. I doing my master's online, uh, all these different factors that a lot of people would look at me and say, hey, you know, you don't have the research experience to go do a doctorate, right? Or in the early doctorate, not really having that credential. And I started doing some work on fentanyl first responders in my first or second year at SUNY Downstate, where I did the doctorate in public health. Uh, and I got in conditionally because I didn't have, <laughs> I didn't have any public health background courses. Yeah. So I kind of had to work my way up, work my way through it. And we ran a survey. We looked at first responders, police, law enforcement, firefighters, EMTs, and their risk perceptions to fentanyl. This was a very hot topic at the time. There was really not much training on it. And I went online looking for resources and I went, came across the NIH worker training programs tool. They had a training tool with slides. No idea who these people were, <laughs> right? Uh, and I used their slides, I used their tools to put together all of, most of our information, most of our resources and how we went about trying to get this training in and addressing these working populations. And my advisor at SUNY Downstate, Dr. Paul Landsbergis, which is another gem I'm so thankful for, took my research, that publication that we put together, a very brief report on it, and shared it with the director of that worker training program. They knew each other and they saw uh, something of interest in it. And the gentleman, Chip Hughes, the program director, I think was startled to see that I was using his information. <laughs> I was using the program's resources, yet we had never connected. Uh, and we talked, we hit it off. It was great. And they had been mulling around addressing opioids in the workplace. So thinking broader, not just fentanyl, but the connections between opioids in the workplace. Uh, and for our listeners, you know, workers who are in positions of greater risk of injury and illness are more likely to seek pain relieving medication and therefore more likely to lead to addiction and ultimately overdose. So there's a huge connection between work and the opioid epidemic that we're facing right now. So when we decided to pilot that program in the summer of 2019, we did this in person because there wasn't this thing called COVID yet, right? Not so, yet. <laughs> not yet. So we got away with it. Uh, and we went around the country to these different organizations, 
unions, uh, the Department of Energy, um, and we talked about you know opioid use disorder being a disease and not a lack of willpower, and that sparked a lot of controversy, right? So we had people who were in upwards. Our our first course in Hanford, Washington, with the Department of Energy, actually, we when those things were mentioned, the class got quiet. It was the first the first class that that was held, and I had went as the evaluator. So there is my kick into the door of evaluation to put me on the team. They had me do an evaluation as a field experience through downstate. So I was able to get my field experience with SUNY downstate and the NIH was able to get an evaluator to work on this program. And the students in the class, you know, were all workers at the Department of Energy and they're in charge of training and education and such. And they were furious by the end of it. They were quiet. But at the very end, when we finally asked for feedback, there was uproar by so many of the students because they had these deep-rooted stigmas when it comes to opioids, these deep-rooted beliefs about drug addiction that a six-hour class was not going to cut it. <laughs> and the next day, they, we stayed back, me and Chip, and we listened to the folks, you know, not in our class, but another, another program going on. And one of the students got up in the middle of the whole discussion, this round table and everything going on and said, hey, I, I'm addicted to alcohol. I have been for many, many years. And the class got quiet and they started to relate to him and they, they all came forward. And next thing you know, we had people pulling me to the side saying, hey, I'm addicted to heroin. Hey, I'm addicted to cocaine. Hey, you know, I'm injured, don't know what to do. And we'd have, you know, some really stunning Stunning discussions about not just them, but people maybe in their family, you know, spouses, brothers, sisters, best friends, you know, and made, I think, open the door to break down that stigma and help people realize that, you know, you're not alone. This is kind of happening to everyone in a way. There are deeper issues when it comes to substance use and uh, the connections to mental health and, and much more. And it was such an inspiring moment that I had to make that my dissertation. <laughs> There's... There was no way I could turn my back on people that were so desperate for that kind of help. They weren't looking for a scientist. They weren't looking for a researcher. They were looking for help, right? I remember being in Virginia with the United Steelworkers, and one of the students in the middle of the class uh, gave me a coin. It was one of those AA, alcohol anonymous kind of coins, and told me that before talking to us, he would have rather died than seek help. You know? So I continue to make this evaluation, this program, not just my dissertation, but a way to continue to focus on opioids and the workplace. And in March of 2020, at this point, we were doing a follow-up evaluation of those trainees. You know, so six months later, we we're kind of looking at it. And we had to cut it short because now the thing that we had just mentioned, COVID-19, finally came to the door. And we started changing the way we were doing stuff. And we were supposed to go deliver a instructor course and a leadership program starting the next week, yeah, I believe in Connecticut or so, but we had to shift everything to online. And that there was a giant shift in the way we were delivering, uh, not just the program that would eventually go over in the summer, but the way we would evaluate. Right. And there's so much uh, controversy about training in person versus online, 
the way that we would evaluate it, not having it set up already. And while COVID was not part of my dissertation, <laughs> for many people, it became in a way a factor of looking how the pandemic impacted just our evaluation, the program overall, and of course has had a huge impact on the substance use disorder and mental health issues throughout this country, exacerbating it significantly. Uh, I was also duly at the time starting to work on the NIH's COVID-19 evaluation. So at the same time with the dissertation and the opioids work, I was also evaluating the worker training program's COVID-19 response and continue doing that even up to this day, really. By, by that last point, you mean that you're evaluating how that program is being conducted via, you know, during the pandemic? Is that what you mean by that? So to give a bit of a reference to the worker training program, since I don't think I actually kind of got into point of what that really is, mm -hmm. the worker training program funds these nonprofit organizations to provide health and safety training for workers who may be exposed to hazard materials and waste. And they also assist with emergency response. And they've been involved with many natural and man-made disasters, including the September 11 terrorist attacks, being on the pile, teaching uh, respiratory health, Deepwater Horizon, Hurricane Katrina, Sandy, Maria, and even the Ebola outbreak, which was helped to build capacity to the COVID-19 response. And what they do is they fund these organizations, these unions, these academic institutions, these nonprofits to help deliver training nationwide. And what we did was to look and see how our technical assistance was able to help with that, how training and delivery was delivered and implemented and disseminated, and just generally better understanding the impacts of COVID-19 on these worker populations. I feel like I may have gotten one of those trainings before <laughs> as a governmental employee. Yeah, I, I definitely had some trainings that seemed very national oriented, but very cool. Very cool. So you've had like an incredible journey to this field. And it's really interesting that you focused on, you know, you got to the point where you're working, you know, like right environmental sciences, and then you're working in hazardous conditions. And then you realize, well, we need to examine the conditions that these hazardous materials are being worked in and the people involved. And so you start working towards the people and the end of things as well. So it's just really fascinating hearing how you're recognizing kind of the systemic nature of all of this, right? That it's not just the thing, but it's also the people and the situation and the, 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 the context in which all of this occurs. Um, so it's just really fascinating to hear your journey through all of that. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, thank you, Dana. And it kind of goes to the points that I'm sure many evaluators will make is that maybe you don't come in as so much an evaluator, right? For me, I consider myself an occupational health researcher the most, right? That's my main issue. My main concern is the health and the safety and the protection of workers. That's what you know keeps me up at night, right? But as a researcher, how can we apply that to training? How can we better understand if training is working? And that would be an evaluation. Evaluation is a wonderful tool in, for example, the field of occupational health to better understand if training is doing what it's intended to do. And if we are really protecting these workers in a very funny situation because uh, disasters, the opioid crisis is certainly a disaster as well as we all can agree with COVID-19 and many other situations. 
uh, that evaluation is a key component, but a difficult component to do under these rapidly moving circumstances. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious, how did your evaluation practice shift from before to during the pandemic? I think before it was knowing that I'm going to be face to face with these people. I mentioned that Hanford Washington situation Mm -hmm. where, you know, we had an off the cuff remark and I was able to pull someone to the side, pull people to the side and talk to them. Right. I was able, oh, we're having lunch. Okay. I'll sit down with somebody I hadn't talked to the whole day. And, you know, next thing you know, she's crying on my shoulder <laughs> about um, these horrible things, you know, and I don't mean to laugh, of course, but, you know, there are situations that are difficult to have online, right? Where do you have that off the cuff remark? Where do you pull someone to the side? Where can someone who maybe feels stigmatized or uncomfortable get that opportunity? Uh, a lot of people literally don't have the broadband to, go online and talk freely. Uh, And we've tried to do different ways of getting that done. For example, breakout rooms have been a great way to get people out, you know, maybe getting more involved, having polls. These group activities have been very fundamental to our program where we ask participants to discuss amongst each other in those breakout rooms, or even as a large group, various topics in that way gets people talking, gets people saying things more. Uh, It's very easy to fall into the just talking nonstop atmosphere of teaching. And we saw that early on where when during the evaluation, for example, the opioid program, that folks earlier on in the trainings in the pandemic were struggling with the, the comfort of using Zoom. It sounds ludicrous now to say I'm uncomfortable with Zoom now. (laughs) <laughs> and yet and, and yet uh for those of you that don't know we had trouble putting on my microphone earlier so for about 15 minutes um <laughs> so you know for so many people they struggled early on to be comfortable with the technology and then we saw over time that people were becoming more and more comfortable with it and more and more confident with it and we were also adapting the training to better understand that we need to teach people and create a better foundation in the beginning for folks. So especially in our instructor program, there was materials that were developed and times that were dedicated to teaching how to, the instructors, how to teach back on this system so that they're comfortable. A lot of that would have never happened before COVID-19, but it was an important thing to happen in terms of how we address the online interactive, you know, asynchronous versus synchronous kind of education. Well, it's interesting because I wonder, I would guess that more people should have received that training even before the pandemic, right? Even if we're getting together for a focus group, we can't just get into a focus group setting and just like launch into it. We still have to kind of introduce what we're doing together and all this stuff and like kind of the, the norms and expectations of what will, what, what it will look like for the people who have, you know, not everybody's been in a focus group before, Right. Um, and I feel like it may be the fact that we've had to move to zoom and other video conferencing software has kind of shown us that we have to do a little bit more of that, that prep work for people to get them like understanding how they're going to, um, interact in this space together. Yeah, I I definitely agree that there has to be time dedicated to not just training, but even in our own setting up evaluation 
to make sure that that groundwork is set, that there has been time dedicated to it. And when it comes to, for example, disasters, the situation rapidly changing and moving, it's difficult to get those things in place early on, right? Because you have right. to move so quickly. And it's definitely, I think, an important part of how we have to look at evaluation going forward is making sure that we are able to quickly adapt and integrate resources into broader programs so that we capture wider audiences and don't leave people out. So I'm curious, when you talk about that app, uh, like the adapt oh my gosh, adaptability, there we go. Um, it makes me think of like developmental evaluation. So I'm curious, like, are you using those types of approaches to your work or are there any other like evaluation theories that you pull into your work on a frequent basis? So when it comes to the theories, we have, you know, logic models that we use. And uh, for example, the COVID-19 response was based heavily on the Ebola response. So the Ebola response happened, you know, back 1415. Uh, and when Ebola happened, Congress put out a infectious disease training program through funding. And I was able to help the nation prepare for Ebola and infectious diseases. And there's been numerous trainings throughout the country since then because of that program. And that helped those funded organizations deliver and quickly respond to COVID-19 when it happened. Uh, I believe there were about eight or so programs and they were all able to, and reported that, they were all able to quickly respond. And then that program ended like two months later. <laughs> uh, and we had in that program, the Ebola program, the infectious disease response, logic models developed. Uh, we had an evaluation plan. We had all of these things built into capacity. Uh, the theories that drove how they made those decisions for their overall program logic model, that training can lead to raising the awareness of a worker and therefore the empowerment to take action. And we use that to respond to COVID and we were able to put together our own you know, logic model once again and evaluation plan and we hope to continue to use that in future responses. But uh, it also makes an interesting point, you know, we talk, you mentioned theory, right? And theory sometimes goes over heads when it comes to practicability and equitable responses, right? It's okay to have theories that uh, are used to make up evaluation questions and make sure that things are validated and reliable and from an evaluation standpoint. But when it comes to moving quickly, <laughs> when it comes to workers and just getting training out there, sometimes you have to think less about the theory and more about the practice of evaluation. I also, I'm kind of curious about going back to just your dissertation in general. So it sounds like you just started investigating this worker training program on your own. And then you just, did you get like, then you, reached out to the person running the program, right? And then you got pulled in to be the evaluator. Am, am I getting that right? Oh, no, no. So the program, WTP, Worker Training Program, uh, brought me in as an intern to in that summer program to help evaluate the program. And I felt so 
enthralled to it that, that I continued to do it. And they were fortunate and kindly enough to able to fund me and the dissertation so that I can continue to do that work. And I actually quit that construction company job, quit everything, left it all behind. Uh, there's a point where I had multiple months where I had no work. It was just, I'm gonna gamble on this dissertation, gamble on finishing this degree, just put myself into the work. I was very fortunate to have that eventually come in. Eventually get funded, you mean? Yes, eventually uh, they funded the program, they yeah. funded the evaluation, and uh, before I graduated, brought me in to do COVID-19 under the contract that was previously mentioned. Yeah. Oh, that's very cool. Cause I'm, I'm always curious about how we can better support financially like graduate students in the work that they do. And, um, it's just, it's very awesome that it just worked out that this internship led into this evaluation work that you were able to pull into your dissertation and get funded for that work. Cause in our field, um, not everybody is able to get funded for their, for their PhD work. So that's awesome. Yeah. And I, I think you bring up a very important point, uh, that I was very fortunate, I know that. I'm very thankful and very, very graciously thankful. But the same cohort that I entered in with at that doctoral program, uh, which includes occupational health, community health, and epidemiology, we went to SUNY Downstate and we are the cohort that went through the COVID-19 pandemic at a university hospital that was COVID only the only COVID-only hospital in the city at that time during the peak of the pandemic. And I was very fortunate that I started my dissertation work right before the pandemic. So I had something to develop and move on. And when things were shut down, I was still able to continue to work and get out there. But unfortunately, so many of the students that I went in with, so many of the candidates did not. And they are very much struggling. They are very much unable to find at, for long periods of gaps in time, the resources that most students at different time periods would have. And it's clearly obvious to me that in time, we are going to look back at those classes of so critically needed public health students during a public health emergency, were the ones who were most hit in terms of their career and education advancement. So I know that I am very fortunate to have had that happen but it's a rare exception for so many of the students right now who are trying to get evaluation work done and address all these issues in public health during a public health emergency. Right, right. And I thank you, thank you for naming that. Um, I think that's really important to, to name that privilege that you were able to, you know, get to get through your program um, before the pandemic. Cause uh, yeah, my, I, I never let the pandemic like, affect the students and their education in, in my, 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 my school and stuff, but they always struggled with it. It's like, we had a couple evaluations where we had to pull the plug, right. And just be like, sorry, we can't continue. It, it's not, not ethical for us in this case to continue. So, you know, we're going to do something else. It'll still be an educational opportunity, but I'm not going to let it like prevent you from graduating. But when it comes to a dissertation, like you can't really do that because those are going to be publicly available. This, this isn't just a classwork, right? Project, right? This is a thesis, a dissertation. There's, they're going to be published. This is part of your graduation requirements. And yeah, I can imagine how 
how, I, I mean, I know people who have slowed down significantly as a result of the pandemic, not just because of trying to get the work to be able to do the, the dissertation, but also the impacts this had on our lives, right? Like we're not just the same human beings that we were, oh gosh, you know, now over two years ago. So. Yeah, certainly, you know, life continues. It doesn't yeah. just stop for anybody. Uh, a doctorate is something that is extremely difficult regardless of the circumstance. So to add in all these factors and the stress, additional burden to mental health and physical health, if you think about it, it's incredibly difficult. And I hope that the students, anybody that's listening here that's also still a student, please do not give up. Yes, we <laughs> need you in the field. Uh, and it's also very inspiring though, when other students are able to finally advance. Uh, thankfully, I was able to, and I, I know my work because of it being disaster related and able to move quickly and already having had that funding and resources in place was able to go. When we think of students who are right now jammed, who are struggling to get their dissertations through, I know that it's extremely difficult under any circumstance, I know that, but please do not give up. Uh, and you know, make sure that you even think about it in your own evaluation. Think about it in the sake that the work that you do is going to have an enormous contribution to so many people. And it will be more than just your dissertation. It will be an impactful work. Right now, more than any time, is the desperate need for science, the desperate need for good work, the desperate need to make sure that the programs that we have out there are effective and meaningful and helping people. Right. Agreed. Agreed. So I'd love to talk more about like what your evaluation work looks like. So when maybe we'll focus on the, the current pandemic work and how that's looked like, but like, what, what does it look like in terms of, you know, who are you bringing to the table in the evaluation work? What kind of methods are you using? What kind of evaluation approaches? Um, what is your particular role in the evaluation? Thank you. So for example, COVID-19, we put together a survey and these focus groups with the principal investigators of the foreign organizations that we have. So for example, we would have a union in United Auto Workers. Uh, we would have these nonprofit organizations like Make the Road New York. And we would have government entities also involved. And we would speak to them about how they've gone about delivering training. We've also talked about the impacts of technical resources that we've had for them and then better understanding how we could help improve their contributions and help them in the work that they're trying to do. And when it comes to the, the evaluation, many of the people that I work with, at least on the staff side, their job is not evaluation. Their job is to manage these grants. They have an enormous amount of work already to do. <laughs> you know, I came in to add in a level that they didn't have too much before, which is an evaluation component. They do have people that are brilliant, obviously, but their capacity to focus on evaluation was so limited. And to have someone dedicated to it has been very helpful in showing the importance of worker training. Uh, you know, I don't want to get too political, but labor has been under attack for a long time. And the last couple of years, it's received a little bit extra. Uh, 
in terms of being scrutinized and unions are being heavily criticized at times and pulled back in their power and ability to help. We've shifted to things that are, how we could say, gig economy, you know, less and less people who have steady work and more and more day-to-day kind of situations. Uh, and being able to reflect on those things has been part of what I do. And every evaluation is different. <laughs> I don't think I have to tell that to the audience. They, they know that more than anybody. And what, for example, the opioid program and the COVID-19 program, I would use a mixed method approach where I brought in that quantitative and qualitative data and tried to better understand it together using that information. But also at the same time, we've expanded the evaluation role to include much more, all kinds of other disasters and situations. And uh, we also have these COVID-19 recovery centers that are coming up, uh, actually are underway, where they're focusing on the transition to recovery in underserved communities uh, and providing social services and training. And I'm looking at that as well from an evaluation, but using a case study approach, because I feel that's the best way to communicate that information. Because it's not just the pure science of it, but it's also the communication of the findings that we have to the broad public and making sure that we are supporting workers and getting that information out there. So I guess the best way to summarize it is my evaluation depends. <laughs> like so many people, it depends nope. on the audience, it depends <laughs> on the situation, and depends on the, the community that you're trying to help the most. That's awesome. Yeah. I always, my answer to everything is it depends. It depends. Right. So, um, are you, a, are you a team of one then? So like you're saying all your colleagues are like, so focused on like implementing the programs. It sounds like, are you the only evaluator working in, in the workers training tro- program or do you have a staff of, of working with you or do you all kind of work together a little bit? Well, we definitely all work together on anything. So we've okay. been very uh, supportive of each other in terms of um, various issues and various topics. Uh, there is one other person who is heavily involved in evaluation, Demia Wright, who is my, I suppose, supervisor at the worker training program. And we work together most of the time on almost everything. Uh, so there, there is people there that do know evaluation and do perform evaluation work but because of their capacity and that they already have so much going on, to have someone strictly dedicated to evaluation in me, I think has been very helpful. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's helped us do more evaluation than they would have been able to do without having someone dedicated to it. So hopefully, if there's other programs out there that are contemplating, should we get an evaluator dedicated to evaluation? I don't know. I'm not, I'm just pitching the idea there that maybe it's a good idea. It helps. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and it sounds like you're, you're helping build the evaluation capacity of your unit, right. Of the other people working with you to, to continue doing the evaluation, even if something were to happen and your evaluation team weren't working there any longer. Yeah. And capacity building uh, recently to me and I, and another person who runs a program called the national clearinghouse Deborah Weinstock, we worked together to write a building capacity paper of the worker training program since basically 9-11 and earlier to now and how they've addressed infectious diseases and 
response. We've also looked at the history of evaluation and better understanding how we can improve our evaluation. And it's a continuous effort that we never stop thinking about how we can continue to improve the way that we evaluate and better understand how we're impacting these communities uh, to not just think about those short-term outcomes, but the overall lasting impacts of our decisions. This history of evaluation one, are you, is it history of the evaluation in the workers' training program at the NIH, larger speaking? Like what's the scope of this? So I've, I've been focusing strictly on the worker training program in our community of the funded programs and workers. Very cool. Very cool. I'm curious, what else, what else should we talk about? What are the things that are on your mind that we haven't brought up today? <laughs> uh, I think hearing uplifting stories has not been something that we've talked about a little bit. You know, we've talked so much about this doom and gloom, <laughs> these struggles that we're facing. Uh, but it's also been very uplifting to hear, you know, even through the course of an evaluation, uh, how a program may be helping someone, how focusing not just on training, but, you know, these broader efforts to help people. And when I look back at the opioid and workplace program, I think about so many people that I've met, even though you know, some of them have been only the upper half, like we are right now on this right. video call. But how many people I've met and how many people I've talked to and stayed in touch with about their lives? It's not just, oh, here's a survey pre-post. Okay, give me your qualitative. And I'm going to go. But actually sticking around with that community long after the training, long after whatever program you had set up and staying connected with them staying in touch with them, you know, not just for follow-up evaluation purposes now, but <laughs> to be there for that community, I think has been really rewarding to hear, uh, to hear these organizations come back and speak about, hey, this training has had an impact on me. Hey, this is what's going on in my life. Hey, uh, you know, we need to do this. We need to do that. Has been largely rewarding to know that it's not just the one time in the room moment, it's a lasting moment. And that if you set up an evaluation, I don't wanna say right, because there's never a right evaluation, <laughs> but, but if you set up an evaluation with the goal to do as much as you can, I think you can get something much more out of it than just a report. Yeah, well, it, it warms my heart the way you describe how you do your work and how you think about it because my experience has been that folks coming into evaluation from non social science research areas, um, tend to approach it very quantitatively of just numbers, 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 like, did it work effect sizes, all that types of stuff. And don't get me wrong. That's like, it's perfectly needed, but the, the stories aspect, the qualitative aspect, the getting to know the communities that you're working with aspect. Like I really enjoy hearing that, that you bring that and you value that so much in the work that you do. Yeah. I've seen so many times, well, first of all, thank you. But I've seen so many times that, Hey, here's my survey. Uh, oh, 90% agree. Okay. Thank you for this meaningless statistic. <laughs> you know, yeah. this, this under, except for another academic or another researcher, the broader public, is not really going to care too much that you just said 90%. Yeah. 
But if I tell you, for example, hey, thank you, I understand how to use Zoom now. I didn't understand before. Hey, I was frustrated alone. You know, I had serious doubts of myself and my health, and now I feel better. You know, those kind of discussions, those kinds of points, uh, especially for something about, you know, life and death here, right? People's well-being and the protection of workers, not just on the workplace, but when they go back home, you know, so much stress isn't just in the workplace. Stress is all day and all night if you're facing something that is harmful to you, you know, harmful to you and your family. And sometimes it's not so important to be the subject matter expert, right? I'm sure you've, I'm sure in some other podcasts I must have mentioned that, you know, that <laughs> it is not the criteria to be the subject matter expert and draw on these strictly by the line findings, but it's also to come in as a human, to come in as someone who cares, someone who wants to do more than just present you with some numbers. Uh, yeah. I think it has a powerful impact to speak on people's stories and to speak about the, the challenges one has faces. Because to just speak about the numbers doesn't capture the image and the grasp and gravity of the situation. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. Yeah. I'm curious, are you a member of the American Evaluation Association? Are we going to get to see you at the conference this November? I am very excited to see these folks from AAA. Woo! Uh, I am a member. I've presented at the Disaster Take the last few years. Awesome. Um, and the first year I did it, I was like, I really don't want to be here. I don't feel like an evaluator. I don't know why I'm listening to this. You know, by the end of the conference, I changed my mind. And, <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, wow, these are really awesome people that, that care, that have brilliant in-depth, I'll never even get close to kind of understanding of evaluation. So I, I highly recommend folks take the time to listen to a lot of these uh, folks about what they're talking about, what they're doing, the great work that they're doing. And I'm also very excited to be at conferences in person in general, right? We have a historically black college conference in New Orleans in a few weeks to talk about climate change. Uh, there's also uh, the American Occupational Health Conference in Utah in a few months, as well as an organization I'm very heavily involved in, the American Public Health Association. So I'm very excited to see all these different groups I'm also thinking about, you know, when we're online, it's pretty easy to attend multiple conferences at once, you know? So <laughs> it'll be interesting to see how I handle, uh, and so many of us handle being at multiple conferences in a year that are not on Zoom anymore. It's time to, time to put on a suit. Put on uh, something other than slippers. <laughs> yes, no, I'll still wear my slippers, but you know, the suit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm very much looking forward to the conference and I uh, hope I can meet you in person while we're there. I'm, you know, a little trepidation at the same time. It'll be my first in-person conference since the pandemic started, but which I can imagine I'm like, like, I think what you're mentioning is like, I don't think I'm going to be able to be at hundred percent capacity, the full, like, what was it? Was it four days of the conference? Like I'm going to have to take a lot of breaks to get through that. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm, I am planning to space myself out well. Uh, I think we learned a lot about mental health 
in these mm -hmm. last couple of years. So, you know, if you don't see me for a few lectures, I'm taking a nap. <laughs> good, good, good. But I think a lot of folks also probably share that same feeling that you mentioned, you know, that little bit of anxiety. Uh, it's difficult for people, for many people, for any, pretty much anybody, anybody that's out there, you, there's some level of a little anxiety and discomfort. And I think that's totally normal. I think it's totally okay to be uh, the trauma that we faced uh, the last few years to be easing your way back into things. But I also think it's really important that we do it as long as we do it safely and intelligently and vaccinated. It, it's the right thing to do and it's time. And I'm very excited to finally see folks. I don't know if we're hugging folks yet, but I'll, I'll, I'll do the yeah, I'm not I'll do so the sure about bump. that. Yes, I'll do the elbow, elbow bumps. Bump. Yes. Oh, <laughs> well, cool. Um, so maybe we can wrap up a bit. One thing I like to end the show with, the podcast with, is something um, from the NPR's Code Switch. Um, I haven't heard them do it in a while, but they used to end by asking what song is giving you life right now. And I always like to, I like to flip it a little bit and like what in evaluation is giving you life right now? So before in the the way I've dealt with the opioids program has been strictly as the evaluator. Uh, going forward, where there are some discussion of delivering some of that training. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to be delivering some of that training. And since we have the evaluation in heavily capacity and well set up, we're able to do that simultaneously. But also has opened the door, I think, to delivering training and the way that I would evaluate training going forward. Uh, also, to have that opportunity to speak more broadly, you know, to be less behind the curtain and to be in the front, <laughs> to speak vocally about it, I think it's been very exciting to me, not just evaluation, but there's a general thing that I'm very excited about. Uh, for the sake of evaluation, we have so many things that are coming forward in the upcoming year that I'll be working on that I'm I'm really happy to do because it's not just the same thing that we've been doing over for the last few years, like I've just mentioned with the discussing stressors and things like that, but now talking about that transition to recovery. So I had mentioned the COVID-19 recovery centers. I've also, we'll be working on looking at small business research grants that we give out and looking at evaluating those programs and the innovative technology that they've put together in terms of addressing hazard material training. So there's a lot of a lot of things on the plate going forward. And the things that are most exciting to me are the ones that show us that we're headed towards recovery. And not just recovery here, but even in the opioid epidemic and so many different situations that we are seeing communities moving in a, in the right direction. And I hope it stays that direction. And I'm excited to be part of that evaluation process. Very cool. It sounds like you have a lot of fun things coming up and it's, it's very awesome hearing how you're getting more involved in the program itself, as opposed to just kind of being a quote unquote external evaluator. But I, I, I find such great benefit of getting kind of hands deep into the work itself. Um, like you get such a clearer understanding of what's going on and um, how to evaluate it better by doing that. Yeah. I think the number one criteria is that you have to care. And if you care, especially if you know, we're talking about workers, we're talking about people, we're talking about people, regardless of their age or their sex or their gender or their political view, it don't matter. They're people. And to be there and have a greater opportunity to help 
and protect, I think is important, not just for me and you in this conversation, but hopefully here for everyone listening. So where can folks best reach you if they want to get in contact with you? I will gladly share my email. <laughs> uh, I believe you'll have a show notes or so, and you're yep. more than welcome to put that in there. And I am happy to talk to anyone, as you can tell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm very excited. I'm sure there'll be plenty of folks that reach out and I will gladly talk to all of them. Thank you. Well, thank you, Eric. It was great getting to know you and getting to meet you. Jeff's talked about you a number of times and I'm glad we finally got to connect and, and do so on the podcast. So thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it's been such an honor. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast website at evalueland.fireside.fm and subscribe to get notified of new episodes and contact us with your questions, comments, or suggestions. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, this has been Evalueland.